This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. We learned this past week in a bombshell report that the governing PCs at Queen's Park are sitting on $6.4 billion in unspent emergency COVID-19 funding. Ontario is one of six provinces that have left billions on the table, even though the money is earmarked. The report also shows the overwhelming majority of pandemic aid is coming from the Trudeau Liberals, who are kicking in 94% in pandemic relief aid to Ontarians versus 6% from the Ford Tories. On Wednesday, Libby Snymer was joined by the author of the report, senior economist David McDonald at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Well, it's not unusual for budgets to have unallocated funds like this, contingency funds or, or other areas where they haven't allocated the money. In some ways, it's a bit of a hedge that uh, they might need the money, but they might not need the money. In the case where they need the money, it's not going to change the underlying deficit because it's already kind of baked in. But if they don't need the money at the end of the year, all of a sudden the deficit's a bit smaller because they didn't use the money. Um, in this case, uh, there's, there's clear need for the money. Um, and so... You know, right now the province has uh, $2.4 billion in uh, unallocated funds this year, and then they're going to add another $4 billion, which is how you get to the $6.4 billion, um, on April 1st in the new fiscal year. So this is a lot of money that hasn't been allocated to anything in particular. Now, this isn't unspent federal money. This is just something that the province has decided they're going to do on their own. Several other provinces have done it, but nothing like the scale in Ontario. You know, Quebec, for instance, has a $300 million uh, uh, unallocated fund, whereas Ontario's is $6.4 billion. So a huge difference, even though, you know, per, the yeah, provinces are similar sized. It's the earmarking that, I mean, I, I, sorry if I'm being a bit thick, but this comes up with long-term care as well. Funds are earmarked. You get the money from Ottawa, and Ottawa says this this money has to be spent for Topping up wages for frontline workers, let's say. Uh, and if it's not spent for that purpose, it has to be returned. So how do they, how is it hang on to in that way and maybe applied against a deficit? Yeah, in terms of the transfers from the federal government, um, you know, Ottawa has, or Ontario rather, has, has, has spent those uh, and has largely accessed the full value and spent them in, in the areas where they should have been spent uh, within reason. Um, you know, these unallocated funds, the $6.4 billion, this doesn't, doesn't connect directly to federal money. This is purely a creation of the provincial government. They decided to create the $6.4 billion fund um, and sit on it. Um, so it, it's counting, you know, it's counted in the deficit, um, and it's a hedge. So if, uh, you know, they don't need the full $6.4 billion um, by the end of the next fiscal year, then the deficit's lower by $6.4 billion, and, and Bob's your uncle. Um, now, uh, you know, that's a, that's a political calculation as to whether you, you want to spend this money on on programs, um, but there's a real need on the ground. I mean, the schools are closed. We can't go out of our homes. Uh, you know, we, I mean, there's, there's a real need here. And so it is a bit concerning that so much money is wrapped up in these funds. I mean, part of the goal of this report is to highlight, look, there's a lot of money that the government could deploy, the, the provincial government could deploy 
um, without changing the underlying deficit figures. Uh, it doesn't increase the deficit at all. Um, and that they should deploy it because there's a real need uh, in Ontario, as, as there are in other provinces, to really combat the second wave of the virus. Uh, but if it's if it's not direct aid, then how is it being characterized as COVID-19 funding? It's in an unallocated, well, it's spread across three unallocated funds. Um, one is a health COVID fund, one is a jobs and people fund, um, and the third one is called the pandemic fund. So they have different names. Um, and and so they're in the budget under those names with, you know, a total of $6.4 billion if you add them up over, over the next two years. Um, it's just that it's not for program yet. So it's not for, you know, buying PPE and sending it out to businesses. It's not for, uh, you know, better testing in long-term care homes. It's not for anything in particular, but it is a budget line. And so that's the situation that, that, uh, that Ontario is living with right now. What would you like to leave us with? Well, I mean, I think that this is really very much a story in progress that, uh, you know, several unallocated funds exist by province. Several provinces haven't done appropriate cost matching. Several provinces haven't fully spent what they've received from the federal government or fully applied for the amount of money that they, they could receive. This has been almost entirely a federal affair in terms of the spending and where the money is ultimately coming from. Um, and there's a lot more money to come. And so this, I hope, points out that the provinces could certainly be doing more in terms of uh, accessing basically free federal money um, and also committing more of their own money as we move into hopefully a recovery effort as, as vaccine rollouts start in the spring and summer. Senior economist David McDonald at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. There is a new advocacy effort to end the devastation caused by COVID-19 in long-term care. Hundreds of doctors have banded together under the name Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. They've signed a letter calling on the Ford PCs to act now to address deadly COVID-19 outbreaks at long-term care homes across the province. They're calling it a humanitarian crisis, which violates the human rights of nursing home residents. For months, the Zoomers advocacy group CARP has been calling on Premier Doug Ford to fire his long-term care minister for her failing to protect residents during the second wave. A petition at carp.ca now has 6,500 signatures. But the additional help and advocacy is certainly welcome. On Wednesday, Libby spoke with two of the founding members of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care, Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, a professor at Ontario Tech University who specializes in family caregiving, and Dr. Amit Arya, a palliative care physician and board member of Canadian Palliative Care Physicians and the Ontario Health Coalition. To be very honest with you, Libby, we're just also frustrated. And I, I would honestly say frustrated is a bit of an understatement because for months, I mean, really since the second, uh, you know, since the first wave, but especially now that we're in the second wave, we've been just sort of watching and, you know, sort of seeing these appalling situations in our long-term care homes where people are not just dying of COVID-19, but people are dying of hunger and dehydration. There's lack of basic care lack of communication with families. Um, and, you know, this is all in a situation where the virus is not new. I mean, we now know that Canada, I mean, I think it was just a couple of days ago, uh, last year in 2020, that we had the very first case of COVID-19. So the same factors that were in evidence and led to the spread of COVID-19 in long-term care in wave one are still in evidence today. And our government's sort of response to this, even though they had all summer to act, 
really pales in comparison to other provinces. So we've just brought this, brought a lot of the frustration that we're hearing and a lot of the, you know, the grief and the exasperation together in this new movement, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care. And I wanted to add that actually we now have over 800 people who have signed our open letter. Dr. Stamatopoulos, you have come out with a specific list of things. Some of them are long-term, but what in the short-term do you want this government to do right now? Well, I don't think there's any calls for confusion here. Call in the military. We have, you know, our prime ministers offered these healthcare teams, which are critical for stabilizing some of the worst hit homes. And we have an increasing number of homes with over a hundred infected residents and staff. And these homes are in crisis right now, just trying to get through by the skin of their teeth. There is no question that they would help as a crisis response system. But more than that, we need to make sure we're immediately hiring more nurses and more PSWs because understaffing was well predicted to have been the, the most dangerous absence or, you know, inaction by this government in terms of engaging in a sec- not engaging in a sector-wide staffing blitz. And, and I would say we need to make sure that we're properly overseeing these homes. We need to make sure we have infection prevention and control individuals tasked to each home, something Quebec has been doing for months that can help prevent the very real and widespread preventable error that we are seeing every single day. It's a new story at a different home. Sunnycrest, Tender Care, St. George, Roberta Place, widespread preventable negligence that should never have happened that now has led to mass casualty offense. And what do we get from our government? Nothing. Dr. Arya, once the vaccine is distributed by next week, we are told, um, are we going to see a drop in, in this horrible rate of death? Well, I'm very hopeful that that will be the case. I mean, we're starting to see uh, some of the COVID-19 daily case counts uh, come down in the community. But keep in mind, I mean, our long-term care system, as we've outlined in our open letter for Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, is in crisis. And it's possible that in the next two weeks, that's when the death toll from in the second wave will actually surpass the first wave. I mean, we had, I believe, over 30 deaths uh, in in the last 24 hours that were reported in long-term care alone from COVID-19, which really means that there's actually more than one person dying per hour in long-term care in our province from COVID-19. So, I mean, we're still a ways away from giving everyone the second dose, and it's really two to four weeks afterwards that we might see, see the full effect. So we're definitely not out, out of the woods yet. And what's more concerning, I have two other concerns, is that, well, now we have this really, you know, this variant circulating the B117 variant, which is a lot more transmissible. And many people are talking about how it could even cause a third wave of COVID-19. And, you know, to add to this, uh, you know, one of the big problems with the, with the, with the rollout, I mean, Dr. Stamatopoulos and I have been very consistent about how staffing is so critical to care for people in nursing homes, but really they've, they've done well. I mean, although it was very slow, they've done well with vaccinating the majority of residents over 90%. But staffing and how the, how that vaccine is being delivered to them is really not going well. I mean, the city of Toronto, for example, their data shows that only 43% of frontline staff working in long-term care have gotten the vaccine. Dr. Amit Arya, a palliative care physician and board member of Canadian Palliative Care Physicians and the Ontario Health Coalition, and long-term care advocate Dr. Vivian Stamatopoulos, professor at Ontario Tech University. They are the co-founders of Doctors for Justice in Long-Term Care. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, the bullying of health professionals online and how to stop it. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. The pandemic has turned the focus on medical and public health experts as we in the media look to them for expertise, advice and guidance. But this has led to a very disturbing phenomenon, bullying and harassment, both online and elsewhere. We've seen it against experts who criticized the Ford government's handling of the COVID-19 crisis in Ontario. There's also the controversy around Dr. David Fisman, who was called out by the premier's office for consulting work he did for the Elementary Teachers Federation while sitting on Doug Ford's science advisory table, despite the doctor's transparency on this consultation. Then Dr. Brooks Fallis claimed his contract with Trillium Health was terminated because he criticized the government. Meantime, the president of the Canadian Medical Association has issued a statement saying online bullying has to stop. Libby was joined on Thursday by two experts who are personally familiar with social media bullying. Dr. David Jacobs, chair of the Ontario Specialists Association, co-founder of the Ontario Coalition of Doctors and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists, and Dr. Ray Dianandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. It's not unusual to get a fair amount of hate mail these days. Um, and it's, it's targeted at the lowest hanging demographic fruit. So in my case, I'm a non-white person with a non-Caucasian name who's an immigrant. So they go after my skin color, my name, uh, go back to where you came from, that kind of thing. A lot of colleagues, they go for their gender, you know, also their racial identity. It's un- previously I was sympathetic. I feel like these are people who have lost a lot. You know, their businesses are in shambles. They're upset that they're wearing masks and they're looking at someone to attack. I'm sympathetic, but only to a limit. Uh, so they see like the the talking head on TV and assume that it's my fault that these things are happening, and they um, they direct their anger towards the expert making commentary and not towards the policymakers or towards the disease itself. So there's a lot going on here, and I don't really know how to process it. Dr. Jacobs, uh, what have you been seeing? Well, I I think that um, social media is a very ugly place, and it has been for uh, for a great many years. People feel protected by their anonymity uh, to attack others. Uh, And there's another kind of nasty little bit of business with social media that I think we have to acknowledge, which is there are people kind of form teams, they form gangs, and they'll gang up on you. Uh, So whether you be uh, pushing an idea that is from the left or from the right, uh, you'll find that uh, people will kind of move in packs. And sometimes these people who are attacking you are other professionals. And it's, it's kind of hard to see. And I think that we all need to take a step back, and before we put something out online, we have to ask ourselves, would we say this in a professional uh, capacity, and should we? And would we say this to somebody's face? Um, and, and I think that's, uh, you know, we have to reflect before we uh, go out and say things online. 
Dr. Dionandon, we've also seen that, that good can come of it. Yesterday, I talked to some doctors participating, you know, Doctors for Justice and Long-Term Care, and they went from a few of them to 800 of them in a couple of days because of social media. Absolutely. These tools have both sides to them, the good and the bad. And even when I receive uh, some hate mail, it's followed up with scores of supportive messages. So it does reveal the good side of society as well. In fact, my takeaway message from my experience of dealing with the ugly side of society is I have discovered a magical side of society that is actually quite nice and good. And I think most Canadians are, are quite good. But to go back to this, the cowardly aspects of this, I think that's really on target here. There's no adage, if you give a man a face, a mask, he will show you his true face. And so much of this can be uh, addressed, I think, if the anonymity has been removed. But we also need to distinguish between the organizational bullying, the disincentivization of speaking out, versus the personal attacks. I think what we're seeing is with, you know, um, the firing of Dr. Fallis and so forth is that's an organizational thing. That's an administrative thing that I think speaks to a dysfunction in the way that our administrations run. And the other side of this, the name-calling, that is a, a personal thing that speaks to the fiber of society that has somehow become disentangled with our lack of overall civility. Dr. Ray Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, and Dr. David Jacobs, chair of the Ontario Specialist Association, co-founder of the Ontario Coalition of Doctors, and president of the Ontario Association of Radiologists. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Well, this story will resonate with you if you live in a condo or apartment building. For many people, just getting on the elevator is a trip full of anxiety because some people do not respect the rules around masking and distancing. The City of Toronto has been receiving hundreds of complaints from more than 260 buildings about residents not following the mask-wearing bylaw in the common areas of their properties. And city staff say they will move to enforce the bylaw. But what does this enforcement look like? To find out? Libby Snymer was joined by Natalia Polis at Lash Condo Law and Carlton Grant, Executive Director, Municipal Licensing and Standards at the City of Toronto. Since August 5th, over the last six months, the the city through our 311 channels have received uh, just under 2,000 complaints. So 1,950 complaints about um, people not wearing masks or about there being no signage or no policy in that particular building for mask wearing. So we did an analysis of that, and of those complaints, we found that 263 of those locations had three or more complaints. So we've sent them all educational letters on reminding them uh, what they're required to do as far as post-signage, the the importance of wearing a mask. We drilled down even further to see which had more than 10 complaints, and we found 12 locations, and those are the ones where we're going to go visit in person, talk to the property manager, talk to the landlord, see what's happening in that building, and ensure that they have the uh, the appropriate signage and the appropriate policy in place. The other piece to, to clarify is that about 75% of the complaints were about rental apartment buildings, and 25% of the complaints were related to condominiums. So that's roughly a you know 1,500 apartment buildings and 500 condos. So that is still a a, uh, a large number, and it is uh, <clears throat> something that we'll be working on. We do have a direct relationship with the landlords and property managers of rental apartment buildings as we have a rent safe TO program, which requires all of them to register with us and have a number of different uh, 
cleaning plans, security plans, et cetera. So we have a direct relationship with them and we're working closely with them and the Greater Toronto Apartment Association to get the word out that it's important that these policies be in place, that there's appropriate signage. And then it's it's really incumbent upon the residents of these buildings to to wear a mask when you're in common areas. Uh, I think if we're going to you know, flatten this curve, it's really uh, incumbent upon us all to do what we can. And wearing a mask is a big part of that. Okay, now let's bring in Natalia Polis, who is a lawyer at Lash Condo Law. The city has been saying they're going to enforce these bylaws. Do they actually have the power to enforce anything at a condo building? In our experience, we haven't had that many bylaw officers actually attend our client's property. So we haven't seen that many 311 calls actually yield any positive results, to be honest. Um, however, on that end, the corporations themselves have the power to enforce this outside of calling 311 and contacting the city. So that's really important for uh, residents who are concerned about individuals not wearing masks to understand. Uh, so when you say they have the power to enforce it, wh- what can they do? So at this point, every condo in Toronto should have adopted a mask policy within the corporations themselves and distributed to the residents. So if an individual is not wearing a mask, there's certain enforcement steps, starting with, for instance, verbal warnings to residents who are not wearing masks, which then could end up going to the management, sending a legal uh, an enforcement letter. And then if this resident continues to not comply, it'll eventually go to legal. And we have the capacity of sending an enforcement letter and possibly charging back the cost of that letter to the residents who aren't complying and who aren't wearing their masks. Can you stop them from using the common areas? You, you can't stop them from using the common areas. You can try to get them to wear a mask. Oftentimes, we see individuals claiming that they're somehow exempt from wearing a mask on the common areas and continue not doing so. Unfortunately, the way that the bylaw is read at this point, the condo doesn't really have the authority to request medical documents to substantiate their claims. But a blanket prohibition from using the common elements probably wouldn't be the best route to go. Do you think there's any use to contacting 311? Um, I mean, it doesn't hurt, but in a condo setting, I think your best bet would go through contacting management first. Natalia Polis at Lash Condo Law and Carlton Grant. Executive Director, Municipal Licensing and Standards at the City of Toronto. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Carol in Kingston phoned about her granddaughter's experience with COVID-related restrictions after arriving in Singapore. I have experience with Singapore. I sent my granddaughter... Home to Singapore, December the 5th. So she has to have that to land, has to be negative. And when they land, they take the whole plane load by bus 
to the government-ordered quarantine hotel. You have to pay for it yourself. You're there 14 days. So about two days before the end of her quarantine, two people who were negative tested positive. So they moved all of them immediately to a new hotel. And on the day she was to leave, my daughter went to pick her up at noon. She came down. They came and took her back because someone else had tested positive. So she had to have another test. And the only cases they're seeing are cases that are coming in on the planes and they're stopping it in their tracks. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Helen in Toronto, a proactive advocate for her mother, who is a resident of long-term care. My mother is 98 in long-term care, and I spearheaded a campaign on my own because there are 20 in her unit, 12 were positive, They didn't get moved. My mother didn't get moved. And then two more from another floor became positive, and they moved them onto the same floor. My my project went all the way up to Doug Ford, whose office said, we're forwarding this to Marilee Fullerton. I put a closing date on my project, self-imposed, Wednesday the 13th of January, on the, and it hadn't come through. Now I've typed up the summary of my notes, and I'm sending it to um, a few people who should know about it, who should do something, though I doubt that they will because it's just too plain, easy, and logical. I had suggested field hospitals way back then, and when you've got four in a room and nowhere to move them, that's the ideal. Or so I think. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.